Let's kick it off with some news. If you follow the news, you know Megyn Kelly. But how much do you know about her? She started as a legal reporter, then became a star anchor at Fox News. Welcome to The Kelly File, everyone. I'm Megyn Kelly. Then she moved to NBC. Welcome. I am Megyn Kelly. Where she was basically told, shut up. Although I didn't know until our interview that she was told to shut up at Fox, too. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Only now that she has her own independent show can she say whatever she wants. The new reporting about the border. Ah, oh, this story. More about that in a moment. I got to know Kelly when we worked together at Fox. John Stossel is the anchor of Stossel on the Fox Business Network and my guest now. We and our families became friends. And then I watched, sometimes in shock, as strange and sometimes nasty things happened to her. A few weeks ago, we finally sat down to talk about that. It's easier to speak freely now, now that we're both our own bosses. Here's our full interview. We worked together. We had to answer to bosses. We're both free. Yeah. Talk about that. It's awesome. It's completely liberating. You know, that was my only mission in coming back into our business. I didn't want a corporate overlord. I didn't want it to be implicit, what I was supposed to say, like I felt it was at Fox, though they're not, not nearly as bad as some of the others, nor explicit as I felt it was at NBC. I just wanted to do the news in the way I thought was appropriate. And now I, it's just, it's great. Nobody bothers me and I'm totally uncancelable. Uncancelable, right. And I felt pretty free at Fox. They let me do what I wanted to pretty much. I found Fox just as respectable as ABC. They were both biased. And Fox was more open about it. They never told me don't do stories on legalizing drugs or open more open immigration. But there were always a couple people who would flip out at something stupid and it was threatening. Yeah. Well, my experience at Fox was, well, first of all, yes, if you crossed paths with the media relations department, you know, they would cut you. So you had to be afraid of that. But And explain, how would they cut you? You'd get it. I mean, you'd get a phone call and you'd get threatened, you'd get yelled at, you'd get told you're a bad person, you'd get- And you'd get bad publicity. They yeah, the next- stuff. Exactly. The next thing you knew, there'd be a negative article on you. I experienced this mostly when I didn't support Roger during the whole Me Too crisis. And because, I mean, that was the irony of my relationship with him. He mostly protected me. And, this and is Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes would protect me. And so most of the people there did not mess with me. He and I had a great relationship, which is one of the reasons why it was so complicated for me when I was forced to decide whether I was going to come forward with this story about what had happened between us um, or not. Got a whole movie made about you based on that. It's like we're telling women, go on, speak up for yourself, just know the entire network is with Roger. No one will believe you. It was largely accurate because it was based in large part on my book and the stories of the other women you know, who went through it, um, though I had nothing to do with it. In any event, at that point, I wasn't being protected by him. And sure enough, you could see the hit pieces drop. And that was, of course, the media relations department trying to gin up support for him. So it's a sophisticated operation. That gets reporters to write nasty stories about their own employees. It's not just Fox. <laughs> I'd love to tell you, oh, it's just the mean people over at Fox News. Not even close. Um, they look like absolute teddy bears compared to where else I've been. 
I'll put it that way. Wow. Well, now you're free. We're both free. Let's back up and talk about your career from your book. We didn't have money or connections. If I was going to have any success, it was going to be the result of working hard. And you really did. And you became a lawyer and then decided law sucked and just broke into TV. Yeah. Well, I like that because if you believe you can do it with hard work, and then you align yourself with something that makes sense. You know, I, I wouldn't have believed that had I wanted to be a prima ballerina, that could have happened at 32 when I switched from law to TV. But I knew the skill set I had developed was going to translate. I used my head and I made a sound judgment about how to use my skills and where I might meaningfully apply them. And so I knew I could do the TV job. In Woodbridge, Megan Kendall. It was one of the things that attracted me to it. You know, I, I knew in my bones I could do it. So. Yeah, I, I absolutely loved both professions. The TV thing kind of ran out of steam, or the, the, the law thing ran out of steam when I realized how boring it was. And the TV thing never ran out of steam. I still love doing media and being a reporter and being a commentator on the news. The news to me is exciting and it's a privilege to be able to deliver it to people and talk about it every day. Do you tell your kids you gotta work really hard? Yes, I mean, not like that, but I do. Not like you do. Well, I don't. I don't really praise them all the time for how smart they are because I just don't think that gets you anywhere. I praise them if I see them struggling and they stick stick with it. You know, like stick with it is what I want to praise. My mother told me you better work hard or you'll freeze in the dark. Oh. Or sometimes she would say you'll starve in the cold. <laughs> and I took that to heart and always worked hard because I was scared of failure. Were you scared of failure? Uh, Are you scared of failure? Not really. No, you're much more relaxed now. Yeah, I'm not identifying with that. Not, that's not resonating with me. My upbringing was very relaxed. I did not have a parent who was in any way a tiger parent. My parents were like, you should take typing twice because we don't sense great things coming down the pike for you. <laughs> Which I did, by the way. I'm really good at typing. Um, it was more something I put on myself. You know, I, I always... Were they surprised when great things came down the pipe? Very, yes, very. I, I always joke that you need to do just the right amount of damage to your child if you want him or her to be really successful. You need to do enough that they have a chip on their shoulder, but not so much that they can't recover from the chip. And I think the reason I did well and wanted to work so hard is I, I just had something to prove. I had something to prove to myself. I didn't want people to diminish me or think I couldn't or think I was just a, you know, bubble-headed bleach blonde. Um, and it was fun to be underestimated. I thought you were a bubble-head blonde. I know. I apologize to you in the Bill O'Reilly green room. I remember that. It was classic Stossel. You came over into this big confession of something that made you look very bad that I otherwise would have had no idea about. <laughs> <laughs> so you. I think I said, I, I, you're really smart and quick, and I thought you were another one of the Fox Blondes who are pretty smart and quick. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't know what my point was, but... I took it in the spirit in which it was offered. But no, it's fun to be underestimated. I love that t-shirt. Underestimate me. See how that goes. You write that as a child you were bullied, yeah. and people flicked fingers at you, and why? Well, I thought about that. I was not an attractive child, the record should reflect. I had a big 
space between my two front teeth. I just I had acne. I was a little chunky. I had a terrible haircut. It just, it wasn't going well for me until about like high school when I discovered hair dye um, and got my teeth fixed. You're so, not a natural blonde? Uh, dark blonde, but the lighter blonde is a little prettier. Anyway, so it wasn't, oh, she's attractive and we want to get her. That can happen to young girls. It wasn't my situation. I think they came for me because I had a big personality. And um, that can be threatening too. You know, I, I had a bigger personality then than I do now socially. I, I would say I channel my big personality professionally now, but in my personal life, I'm much more likely to be quiet at the dinner table, you know, than, than I would have been back then. And little but as girls a kid, can, you were a loud mouth? Yeah, I was a loud mouth. And not everybody likes that, as it turns out. And what would they do? This, so when I was in fourth you. grade, I went to a birthday party, and I, they came over and started flicking me like this, all of them. And I was crying, and they wouldn't stop flicking me. And it being the 70s, there was no grown-up in sight. And so I just made my way. I ran inside and called my house and asked my parents to come get me. These were all girls? All girls. My dad got me. I cried the whole way home. And I'll never forget, we walked in the house. And my mom looked over, and my dad went. But the worst, the worst was my seventh grade year. That was a full year of bullying. It was a full year of torture. And uh, it culminated, nobody would talk to me. I was the scourge of my class. Mostly it was driven by a group of about 15 girls, but the rest just went along. And the ringleader was scary. You know, if she turned on you, you could be next if you joined with me versus her. I had nobody on my side. And it culminated in this terrible incident where she had this big party. And I knew they were having a party and I wasn't invited. It was a cold, snowy, Albany night. And the phone rang, or house phone. My parents were sitting over there. And she said, it's me. She said, do you know where all the people who are coming to my party are, all the guests to my party? And I said, no. And they all screamed in the phone, we're here. And you're not. Yeah. And I went out in the backyard and just skated around the frozen over snow hoping my parents had not picked up what had just happened. And you wrote, to this day, one thing I cannot tolerate is a bully, which brings me to Donald Trump, because <laughs> he's a bully. Definitely. And I look back at what you said to him that caused such a fuss. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account Only Rosie several... O'Donnell. For the record, it was well beyond Rosie O'Donnell. Yes, I'm sure it was. You could have said more about his sexism. What did he expect? There certainly had been other examples of Trump saying controversial things towards women that wound up on the editing room floor in my question. Um, you know, I didn't expect Trump to like that question, but we had a lot of tough questions for everybody there. I didn't really expect any of them to love what we were asking them. It's a presidential debate it's not, it's situation. not beanbag, as they say. Um, I just didn't expect him to stay on it like a dog with a bone for so long and so energetically. She gets out and she starts asking me all sorts of ridiculous questions. And, you know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, uh, blood coming out of her wherever. It took me a long time to realize he did that because he liked the story. 
he was angry in the beginning. But in the end, I think in the way we've come to see Trump likes storylines. You know, he likes grilling Ted Cruz or going after Marco Rubio or whoever he thinks his opponent is. Ron DeSanctimonious. Don't worry about it, little Marco. Gentlemen. He enjoys fanning those flames. And I was just a reporter on the receiving end for a long time. Anything that's not boring. Yeah. I mean, honestly, he basically admitted that to me when I saw him in private at Trump Tower to put an end to the whole thing. Uh, I think he he understood that this was a good storyline for him. And he actually thought for me, too. And I think he was a little sad to let it go. But when I asked him, please let it go, he immediately said, oh, fine. OK, got it. How is it a good storyline for him when he's saying You've called women fat pigs, dogs, slobs, disgusting animals. How is that a good storyline? He thought the, you know, poking me piece of it was good for him. And I can see why he thought that. You know, I mean, I, I understand how awful media can be, especially to Republicans and certainly to, to Donald Trump. So I, I get what he was perceiving. Because I just didn't put myself in that category. The media. People hate the media. And he was showing the world that not only is he unafraid of the media, he's unafraid of Fox News and one of its primetime anchors, one of its debate moderators. He'll take on anybody. He doesn't care. And that's why his poll numbers went up after he did that, not necessarily because his Republican voters hated me, but I do think a lot of them just liked my question, uh, but because he was proving something about himself. There, there were no sacred cows. John McCain the judge in his you know, Trump University case, me, gold star families, didn't matter. You said you think he looked at you as someone who in another world would have gone to bed with him. Well, yeah. <laughs> I had a history with him that suggested, you know, at some point perhaps that that was somewhere out there. But uh, no. But you had a history that suggested that? Well, I've, I'd known Trump for a long time. He's a very flirtatious guy with young women. Not that he ever did anything inappropriate with me, but I'm just saying, yeah, I fit the profile. You said DeSantis can't win the nomination if Trump runs again. Well, I just don't think anybody else could win if Trump runs. So, and I don't, I just, really? I so don't you, know. you think if they got on a stage, you, you don't think that DeSantis is, is crafty enough or the record no. stands enough to, really? Interesting. No. I don't even think that a little. And Trump just posted on Truth Social I agree, <laughs> and played a clip. You really think the hardcore MAGA is gonna abandon Trump or DeSantis? They're not. Oh, did he? He did. Okay. You didn't know that. I knew he posted something, I didn't know so he did. So what, what do you think about that? Well, I guess I'm not surprised because it was analysis that happened to be good for Trump, um, and it's what I happen to believe. I don't, I don't see how anyone can take Trump down and go on to win the nomination or certainly win the general. I, you can't do it. The hardcore MAGA faithful will not abandon Trump for anyone. The only way they're gonna get behind DeSantis is if Trump tells them it's okay. He doesn't wanna run and he blesses it. But if it's a blood war between those two guys, they're not gonna side with DeSantis over Trump. They're not going to do it. And if you think they are, you're not hardcore MAGA faithful. <laughs> for more of my content, go to johnstossel.com. I post a new short video every Tuesday. That's at johnstossel.com. Let's go back to personal stories. You're at Fox. Your life is very good. I couldn't believe you would voluntarily leave to go to NBC. 
Why? You wanted to see your kids. Yeah, that's it. That was just it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a combination of things, but the number one reason was while my professional life was, you know, going like gangbusters, I was making money and I had, you know, what looked like success on paper, I was not seeing them at all. I mean, they were, they had just gotten to the age, they were seven, five, and three, where the top two, the first two, I should say, were going off to school hours where they would come home exactly when I would leave for work. So two out of the three, I didn't see at all Monday through Friday. And then the third was gonna be on the same path. It wasn't good enough. That was ridiculous. That's not, oh, I'm a working parent, we all make sacrifices. That's absenteeism. I felt like that's abandonment. And it just wasn't good enough for me. I was miserable. And then what was I doing for my job? Combat, yes, the Coliseum every night, okay. But toxic, toxic fuel, exhaust everywhere getting attacked all the time by stupid media writers I couldn't stand, by morons on cable news who would say shit about me that wasn't true. I didn't want to be around these people anymore. You know, I just, my Fox friends I loved, but the industry was disgusting. I didn't want to be with them. And I thought if I go to NBC, I can get in, I can do this morning show, I'm out of there by 10:15. I can raise my kids, I don't have to be around TV people. And I can do something less toxic than politics. I can do something more Oprah-esque, you know, something where we talk about our problems and getting better and, you know, being our best selves. And that's really a function of just where I was at that point in my life, which was unhappy. And yet what it all made clear is that the media is just as toxic and the viciousness and the bias, just the fact that you and I once worked at Fox is enough for people to just say we're evil and just to hate. Yeah. Somebody once said to me at ABC, they stab you in the front at CBS. They stab you in the back and at NBC, you have no idea they stabbed you at all. You just look down and you're dying. You're dead. (laughs) It's gone. Happened. Um, That sounds about right. Uh, Yeah. And then any association with Fox News is going to be on you. You know, I remember an executive of a competitive network trying to say, the thing you're gonna have to decide if you wanna leave Fox, and this guy was making me a big offer, is when, how soon do you need to leave? How long is too long to stay at Fox where you can't get the taint off of you? (laughs) I remember yeah, I'm okay with the Fox News taint, you know? think I'm doing great journalism and I have a really big platform and I chose not to go to his network. The time at NBC was, I can't imagine how sneakily ugly they made it. It had been a solid year of attacks. I mean, vicious attacks, like every other day, every other week. Let's not forget, before she was NBC News' Megyn Kelly, for over a decade, she was Fox News' Megyn Kelly basically a pretty race-baiting puppet who Roger Ailes kept trying to put his hand up. Everything I said was controversial and turned into some story about how terrible I was. You do get in trouble if you are a white person who puts on black face on Halloween or a black person who puts on white face for Halloween. Like, back when I was a kid, that was okay as long as you were dressing up as like a character. Jimmy Kimmel and Joy Behar had worn blackface. Yeah. Oh, and many stars on NBC, and NBC had been airing shows as recently as two or three years earlier with characters in blackface. But you're the racist. Yeah. It was about you. For saying, you know, when I was a kid, people used to wear this and it wasn't really a thing. Um, So when did we get- I would have said that. When did we get to this point? That's what I was asking. 
about an NBC show that had just shown blackface. It was Bravo, which NBC owns. And I was saying, why, why should she be canceled, this woman? You know, she clearly was trying to tribute, pay, pay tribute to Diana Ross. So how do we get to this point, right, where the rules used to be this way and now they're this way? And all hell broke loose. But what drove you to the point watching that apology now? You may have heard that yesterday we had a discussion here about political correctness and Halloween costumes. And that conversation turned to whether it is ever okay for a person of one race to dress up as another. A black person making their face lighter or a white person making theirs darker to make a costume complete. I defended the idea, saying as long as it, as it was respectful and part of a Halloween costume, it seemed okay. Well, I was wrong and I am sorry. It's just not you. The apology, you have to understand the mindset I was in. And at that point, I just felt beaten down. I just felt so low. And I was being told by everyone that what I had said was terrible. And I'm guessing all of Megyn Kelly's friends are white. It's, it's not okay anymore to say I didn't know. You can't just say that anymore. And it's 2018 and she didn't understand what blackface means. Right. It's not like now where you have a constituency and the country kind of splits on these culture wars and one side takes one position and another, another side takes another. I had enough bad blood between, say, me and the Trump hardcore faithful that they didn't want to defend anything I said or did. A lot of Republicans were mad at me for going to NBC in the first place. They felt like that was a betrayal, even though my politics never changed, nor did my political coverage at all, if you go back and look at it. So they weren't too, you know, keen to jump in. Yeah, I always and the thought left of your me. politics is kind of lefty. No, I wouldn't say that. But I, for almost all of my Fox years, I had some issues on which I was more left-leaning and some on which I was more right-leaning. But in the way the country shifted now, I don't know what I'm lefty on. I feel like I'm much more on the right now because the country's changed. What does it mean to be more socially liberal now? Nothing I identify with, that's for sure. Um, but anyway, so yeah, the left loved me as long as, as they perceived me as um, you know, the fox in the hen house while I was at Fox News. But as soon as they saw me, in their view, switch to their team, they were angry. I had made up with Trump. I had written a book that talked about my experience with Trump and I had not published it before his election as though my book could have stopped him. Uh, and you know, I think they were just pissed off. Trump won, I was from Fox, whatever. In, in many ways, the whole thing was a blessing. It got me out of there. It showed me the truth about these people. And it began the next phase of my career, which has been the best yet. I wanna be able to say when Trump does something outrageous that it was outrageous. And, and not get any blowback from my employer. Was there blowback from Fox? Yeah, definitely. Don't be so hard on him? Yeah. I'm disappointed. I thought they were grown-ups and they understood that was part of the... You gotta They understand. never said a peep to me. Of course, I wasn't... I was a small fry at that point. Compared and and to I was in the crosshairs. You know, I mean, I, everything I said about him was generating headlines after that debate. And even for a while prior to, um, his point was... He was scared. He was losing a, a portion of the Fox News base who felt Fox, not just me, but the Fox, wasn't being fair to Trump. And in a way, they had a point. All of our pundits back then were these, you know, we might, they might be derided as rhinos by today's, you know, lexicon, but people who were more moderate Republicans or like Chamber of Commerce Republicans, Mitt Romney Republicans. And we didn't have the pundits on the air to defend Trump. But who was Roger losing his audience to? 
Newsmax online, they were just abandoning Fox. They were mad. And he was trying to keep them in the fold while not losing the Chamber of Commerce Republicans. And he was struggling to find that balance. I mean, I think for, you know, in many ways, Fox continues to struggle with where they fall along those lines. And this is post-presidency. So yeah, during his presidency, Trump, or during his campaign, uh, Roger definitely called me in there more than once and tried to ask me, you know, what I was thinking and the way I approached a certain story about Trump, et cetera. And, and I told him the truth, which is I, I do the news about him the way I do it about everybody. But you never knew when the next pushback would come. On him, it was volatile. It was volatile internally and externally. And you know, there were attacks by my colleagues for any negative coverage about Trump too. I should pause and say, throughout this whole nine, peri nine month period where Trump was coming after me, you'd be hard pressed to find more than a handful of examples where I gave him a hard time. I did go after him for attacking the Gold Star family. I did go after him for suggesting the Hispanic judge could not hear his one case because he was Hispanic. Um, honestly, there weren't that many other things. I criticized him on Access Hollywood naturally, uh, but those are just the big ones. It, I wasn't like one of those CNNers or MSNBCers who were just constantly every night, he could do no right, everything he did was bad. That wasn't me. But because it was me and we had that debate thing, it was just extra scrutiny on my coverage. So I got it from some colleagues as well as from Roger. Okay, now as we say, we're free. We don't have to deal with those people, except we're not free because we have this new social media censorship. You concerned about that? Have you been demonetized or your stuff cut off because you said the wrong thing? Not yet, not yet. Never? No, knock wood. I, if I show socialist riots and there's too much violence, I get cut off. Maybe you're more provocative than I am. <laughs> you're a fun target. You're always pressing buttons, Stossel. That's what, that's what your problem is. I mean, I press some buttons too, but I think I've tried to be somewhat careful about it. I don't want that to happen to me. And we have a pretty good relationship with YouTube. So we've worked with them. You know, if we had, like, I got RFK Jr. on the air for four hours. He'd been kicked off of all these platforms. He's had a million things demonetized and um, censored. Because of his vaccine criticism. Yes, and we did the show about vaccines, not just COVID vaccines, MMR vaccine. I mean, the stuff that got him canceled as a commentator is where we went, to the place that hurts. And YouTube you, just ran it. Well, we reached out to them beforehand and said, we're going to give you a heads up that we're doing a very controversial interview. There's actually a them there, people yeah. you can talk to? Yeah, we have a real contact. And um, we weren't giving them the chance to censor anything. We were just letting them know. And they said, okay, you know, we're probably going to slap one of our little, if for information on COVID or any vaccines, go here. We're like, great, go for it. And, and it worked out fine. It was a small price to pay to get that thing aired. And we did some fact checking of him. You know, we took it seriously and responsibly. He didn't agree with a lot of the fact checks. That was fine too. These days, people on the other side won't debate me anymore. Union activists, yeah. teachers union, the Green New Deal people, they don't wanna talk to the other side anymore. Do you find that with the yes. exception of him? Oh, no, I do. Um, but I think there's a couple of reasons for it. One, media is now completely tribal and you're not on their team. They know that, so you're out. And I think, too, the but left... But if they fought with me, wouldn't they be able to convince some people? I don't think they're interested in that because the left controls media and they control Hollywood and they control sports and they control corporate America and they've already won. They don't need to talk to you. 
You're beneath them. They only want points with their side. Your side's gross. You're deplorable. So why would they deign to talk to you or to me? Ugh, gross. They don't need it. Only the deplorables and the, uh, the hateful, MAGA, hardcore, faithful, whatever Biden's calling them now, would talk to a you or a me. It's not a place for Randy Weingarten. <laughs> All right, let's, let's keep it light then. Kim Kardashian, what are we celebrating? <laughs> How do you manage to get everything you say about celebrities in the media around the country? We made up this little board here. Show after show is in the media, and the, the topics are great. What do we got? J-Lo, Shakira, you slam them for showing their vag at the Super Bowl. <laughs> I was right. Calls Kardashians a force for evil? Yes, that too. Because? Because net-net they've done more damage than they have good. Damage how? To little girls, to our culture. To, they are the queens of selfie culture, of narcissism, of reducing oneself to one stupid photo at a football game instead of watching the game in the first place. They are a walking exercise in vapid vanity. Slams B-list actress Meghan Markle, thin-skinned Prince Harry. Yes. What's wrong? They're, they're just the royalty. People love them. Oh, no, they don't. They don't love them. They have a 26% approval rating in Great Britain. She does, and she has, she's below water in America now, too. Kelly urges women to sit on public toilets. Don't <laughs> squat. What do you care? Who published that? The New York Post. <laughs> These are all from the New York Post. Oh, God bless the Post. Yes, I have strong feelings about that, too. If you, if you are a squatter over the toilet seat, you spray everywhere, and then you ruin it for the next woman who's coming in there to do her business. What needs to happen is you take a healthy amount of toilet paper so that it gets nowhere near your hand, and then you wipe down the bowl, then you can sit on it, 51 years old, never had any weird disease come back there from sitting on a public toilet seat, and I don't have like the burning legs or the popping knees from trying to hold a squat, and I, I don't sit on pee because I use the toilet paper. It's simple, ladies. It's not that hard. Betsy McCoy, who talks about hospital infections, says if you're gonna put your sandwich down anywhere in a hospital room, don't touch the curtains, don't touch the shelves, put it on the toilet seat because it's the only place they clean. Oh my God. <laughs> don't, just eat it, don't, or don't eat. One more. What did Olivia Wilde do to Jordan Peterson? Oh, she, I've had enough of her. She tried to blame, she tried to say he's the head of incels and that there are basically all these white supremacists and racists that he's the head of and he's driving them to do terrible things, as opposed to taking two seconds to try to understand why and how Jordan Peterson became popular with whole hosts of especially young, uh, not just American, but men. Uh, the suicide rate amongst men is at astronomical levels. And unlike women, the vast majority of them succeed on the first try. 80% of suicides are men, are by men. But we're not allowed to talk about them and their mental health. And guess what? They don't talk about it either. Men succeed on the first time, and the vast majority of them have never said anything about their mental health problems. Why is that? Because we shame them out of talking about them. They don't think it's societally acceptable. So they quietly go to Jordan Peterson who talks about their issues. He talks about alcohol, he talks about women, he talks about being socially ostracized. And what do you get? Represented in Olivia Wilde film, who knows nothing, nothing about anything. She challenges his intellectualism and then tries to condemn him as head of all the young male racists. No one should be listening to her and no one should be going to her stupid films. She gave us a good role in House, which I really enjoyed, and that is the end of Olivia Wilde and her professional 
attractiveness. But she, like Hollywood, she consumes the left media, which portrays Peterson as just oh, one of those evil right-wing racists. Yes, that's how they feel. A lot of people define the world through that lens. It's very upsetting. True. I mean, it's upsetting for them. I mean, like, imagine living like that, where everything is reduced to one's skin color. I mean, that's what I find about, and I, I don't want to say the left, because I have a lot of friends who are on the left, and they're totally lovely, and they're non-woke. The leftist media. The leftist media and the woke left are the most insufferable people we have right now. And those are the ones who are doing that. I, I mean, my friends who are Democrats in New York, in the Midwest, they can't stand this nonsense. We live in New York. All our friends are Democrats. It's a miracle we found each other. <laughs> <laughs> More serious. Uh, you covered how Hunter Biden was covered or not covered. It's just out disgusting that the Post was canceled yeah. for saying true things right yeah. before the election. It's absolutely disgusting, and it's even more disgusting that all of those intelligence officials, former intelligence officials, wrote that letter calling that laptop disinformation and never apologized for it. N even when the New York Times came out and said, okay, it was real, that we didn't get the, the next letter from all those people saying we were wrong and we're so embarrassed. In fact, what happened not long ago was I went to this public seminar muckety-muck uh, event, and I saw them wheel out General Michael Hayden, who had the nerve to lecture this crowd on disinformation. I'm like, why is anyone listening to you on disinformation? You've become a purveyor of it in trying to tell us not to look at the Hunter Biden thing or trying to tell us that Trump is akin to Julius and Ethel Rosenberg because of the Mar-a-Lago documents that may or may not have had something nuclear related in them. That's who we're parading out as our expert and our, by the media, by the left. So yeah, the media's in on it. It's disgraceful. For more of my content, go to johnstossel.com. I post a new short video every Tuesday. That's at johnstossel.com. Another story the media never mentions. I wouldn't have known about it. You talked about it on your show. The director of the Department of Homeland Security lied about what the border guards were doing. A mounted border patrol agent was seen wielding a whip during an encounter with Haitian migrants. Our entire nation saw horrifying images that do not reflect who we are. The agents involved in these incidents have been assigned to administrative duties and are not interacting with migrants. He was told moments before he came out and condemned them, he was told by his staff, hey, no, we love this story, but the Reuters photographer who took the shot of the alleged whipping is saying nothing of the kind happened, that it's a lie, that he never saw anything like that, and that's not what his pictures represent. And what did Mayorkas do? He went right out there, threw those agents under the bus in the most disgusting terms, promised a full investigation, and put them on desk duty, and has refused to openly apologize or clear their names, even though the investigation never showed any whipping. The president did exactly the same thing. Horses really running them over, people being strapped. It's outrageous. And yet the media won't talk about that. Another one you'd think they'd love is AOC being handcuffed, but they're <laughs> not being handcuffed. That was just good, clean fun. I mean, come on. I, like, I prefer the world with her than without her. <laughs> the squad, I realize they're not good for America, but they're really good for media. It's just fun to cover their ridiculous, absurd antics. But I will say, you know, like, the media's doing a lot with Kanye West and his anti-Semitic remarks, and I get that. We covered it, too. 
Haven't heard nearly as much from the media on Ilan Omar, who is a genuine raging anti-Semite. They're not so interested in that because why again? Because she's a Democrat. Well, we live in this world in the media here in New York City, though you don't anymore. Your kid's school drove you out? Yeah, yes. It's funny, we moved to Connecticut and people will say, oh, because of COVID. And Doug and I kind of sigh and say, no, it's complicated. You don't want to drop your politics immediately, even if you presume people know them. But no, it was the schools. Doug is your husband, for those who don't know. Yeah. We're all friends. He started his own podcast now about authors. We were all in a book group together with big time authors, which I have to stop to say what I learned in that book group is that even superstars are anxious about whether their next book will be a, another huge hit. And Isn't that everybody's cool? insecure. Yeah, even somebody like his first two episodes is called Dedicated with Doug Bront. We're with Jennifer Egan and Lee Child and Lee Child, who's sold way more than 100 million books. He can't count anymore. There's so many has his own insecurities. It's like stars. They're just like us. He'll go to a little bookstore and wonders, will they come to see me? It's remarkable. Well, yeah, so we fled. We fled New York City for the green hills of Connecticut. You fled because of the curriculum? Yeah, yes. Um, they, we went to the more traditional boys' school, the most traditional boys' school in the New York City private school system, and it was a bait and switch. We were there K through, th through third grade with our eldest. So when we got to the third grade, which was before George Floyd, it was the, before the huge explosion of wokeness as we now know it, that school unleashed a three-week transgender education program on our eight and nine-year-old boys, um, showing these videos of guys in tutus, suggesting if you like purple, you might be a girl. It transformed over the next year plus, because we were there during fourth grade too, to uh, raise your hand if you still think you're a boy. Any, do you still think you're a boy? They got rid of the term boy. They got rid of the term son. Now it's your student. Come collect your student. Um, moms and dads, same thing, gone. They don't like that term. They, um, they had a system where the boys would hold up their fists when they were discussing the trans stuff and explaining to them that there are over 100 genders. Uh, and it, you had to do like five. I am, can I swear? Sure. So fucking confused. <laughs> Zero, I got it entirely. And you know, our son was like, everybody was like, five, five, five. We're like, what are we sending them to school? This is fourth grade. They're supposed to be learning about fractions. They're not supposed to be learning about this nonsense. And then the race essentialism exploded in a, an incredibly divisive way. And they were told, if you're a white, you're a racist. They were told, not the children, but the faculty uh, was on the list. So it basically started with a diversity group that wanted mandatory readings that were circulated amongst us first, because I was in the diversity group. Um, then the message they wanted distributed was, in every classroom where white children learn, there is a future killer cop. White mothers are indoctrinating their children in black death, encouraging black death with impunity. We need to have studies on why white mothers are encouraging this. Okay, that was the, the boys' school. Over at my girls' school, it was no better. They went absolutely nuts after George Floyd. When Derek Chauvin was tried and convicted, they handed out to the fourth grade girls a New Zilla article. This is a summary of what happened in the Derek Chauvin verdict. Let's talk about it after. Read it, the girls start talking. 
one little girl, he's bad, he's bad, he's bad. And the teacher stands up and says, this country has a massive problem with police killing unarmed black men. Not true, just not true. Um, and one little girl says, to her credit, wasn't George Floyd resisting arrest? And the teacher says, they always try to blame the victim. And then my daughter said, wasn't George Floyd on a lot of drugs? And the teacher said, this conversation is making me uncomfortable and we are shutting it down right now. This is a white teacher, black teacher? One was black, one was white. They were both on the same page. Um, that's where we are right now. And no critical thinking is allowed. You must only take the one point of view. Even though we've told you to read this, all this information was in the article. And then we can discuss it. You're gonna learn the hard way that certain points of view are not okay to mention, ever. You're on the wrong side. You've made me uncomfortable. You need to stop talking. <laughs> so yeah, we left. Every classroom has a killer cop is weird because most of these kids are not gonna become cops. Oh my God. I'm but it was like, okay. So who is it? Is it, is it my little six-year-old? Is it his sweet little friend? Like, are you, and honestly, the, we had this underground group of parents from all backgrounds, of all different races, religions, et cetera, that was trying to push back against this. And some of our black friends who were opposed to this nonsense, I mean, they, they went to the best schools and graduate schools and law schools in the country. Their children, their sons at this school, were in no way less than or up against a greater challenge than any of their white colleagues, their white little classmates. And they objected to the messaging being given that mm, you're really behind it. You know, I'm sorry, we'll try to help you get beyond your inherent disadvantage. They didn't want that messaging. So this is a private school. You would think they would hear from their customers and back off. They haven't. Even since I've gone public, uh, I just received a message from a friend the other day saying they're just as bad. And it's not just them. You know, Brearley, one of the biggest girls' schools and best in the country, is now making applying parents explain their commitment to DEI. And then not only do you have to do that to get in, once you're in, you have to pledge that you will message to your children, this family supports diversity, equity, and inclusion, and anti-racism, a la Kendi. And we expect you to live that. They're actually trying to change the way you parent at home or you can't go to their school. Your younger brother is a police officer and, rec and recently got attacked. So it, it, I call him my brother because he's been in my family for 30 years. He's technically my stepbrother. Older though, not younger. Um, and yeah, he was attacked, not recently, but what happened was my stepbrother Paul years ago in Albany when he's still a beat cop, you know, he's a foot patrolman, he went on to become a lieutenant, um, was attacked brutally by a gang on the streets of Albany. And they broke his neck in two places. He was in the hospital for a long time. And what did he do? He got right back out there. He continued patrolling those streets, protecting the neighborhood. Um, I mean, this is inner city Albany where the crime is rampant and it tends to be black on black crime. Never said a racist word in his life, never had an accusation along those. That's why he rose up to be lieutenant. And what is the thanks he gets for all of this? He gets white Upper West Side liberal women in their Lululemon yelling at him and his brethren, calling them racists, saying that they're terrible people, that they should be defunded, and therefore not adequately protected themselves. It's absurd. It's deeply wrong, and it's that's why one of the reasons why it's being reversed because it failed. It failed to protect the community or the cops.
when I first met you, you were a crime reporter. I think of you as a crime reporter, and crime is up now. Defunding is not the reason, because it turns out the funding didn't happen, that spending has gone up. The government always grows. But the attitudes are different. If I'm a cop, I think I'm more likely to stay in the car rather than go out and get yelled at. You think that's the reason? Oh, I think that's absolutely playing a part. Look at what happened down in North Carolina where that cop stopped the one black woman who was about to stab the other black woman. He, he stopped her by shooting her. And the narrative was on MSNBC, oh, who hasn't been in a playful knife fight in their time? I remember fights in, in even high school or even younger than that, where a kid brought a pen knife or something to school and teachers were able to defuse that and they didn't have guns. Oh, it was a playful knife, knife shot to your aorta. You know, remember when you used to tickle people's aorta <laughs> when you were in high school? Um, yeah, that was the narrative. And they're trying to take away immunity so that cops, you know, yes, we liked immunity for good cops. If it's a bad cop, we don't like immunity. But the problem is you take away immunity and you get cops sitting in their car. They're not getting out of the car. They know what's gonna happen. But there have been cops who are bullies. Yes. I remember I once posed as a cop. Most everyone assumed I was a real cop. For a story on fake cops who were attacking women in New Jersey. And just putting the uniform on made me feel different. Got a little swagger. People looked at me differently and, oh, they were gonna obey me. And if I was a sadist, Having the uniform makes it easier. Yeah, I mean, not all cops are good, but the vast majority are good. And the, the place we need to focus on police reform is not with the shooting or killing of unarmed black men. Those numbers are very low. They are, it's 13 last year, 18 the year before that. They make 10 million arrests a year, okay? So they are very low numbers. You don't hear that from the mainstream media. And in fact, Skeptic Magazine did a report a couple years ago showing these hardcore liberals think it's like 10,000 a year. Stupid, uninformed ignoramuses. Those are the ones driving our national discussion. But the, the place where the data do show we need reform is in the roughing up of suspects prior to the point of a potentially fatal confrontation. Black men be, get in police custody, black men resist arrest, black men get roughed up, some get roughed up before they resist arrest, some, some get marked for being pulled over or manhandled before they've done anything wrong. And I think having read a lot of this literature, that's a fair game place to focus our energies. But I, I have to say the other piece of the crime problem is these soft on crime DAs. I mean, they, they arrest these criminals and they turn them right back on, out on the street. And so they know that there's no consequence. And the lower the, consequence, the, lower the consequential um, penalty, the higher the desire to commit the crime. It's just the risk reward. You know, so the reason the guys didn't jump over the turnstiles on the subways is because they thought they'd get nabbed and it wasn't worth it. Now they openly say we're not going to push that, so they jump over. Same thing goes up the line on crime, all the way to, you know, burglaries and violent felonies, including murder. And the broken windows theory is real. 100% real. And whether they'll openly acknowledge that or not, they're starting to realize it's true. I'm a libertarian. We libertarians most of us do say one role for government is stopping crime. I get the feeling you're kind of anti-libertarian. When I used to try to push it on your show, you would dismiss it. I don't know, I'm, I, I'm libertarian adjacent. 
I'm, I'm actually kind of into a lot of what the libertarians say. Yeah, like what? Not so much when it comes to like the border. I'm, I'm anti that. But I'm pro-government leaving us alone. And I remember you and I had a debate on my show. We were talking about the Civil Rights Act. How do you know that these private business owners who own restaurants and so on would have said, you know what, yes, we will take blacks, we'll take Someone? gays, we'll take lesbians, if they hadn't been forced to do it? Because eventually they would have lost business. And I like the Civil Rights Act. It's not that I think we shouldn't have done that. But you made a good argument. I was saying, what, so you get rid of that? And like, what, so you're, you're pro, separate but equal, that kind of thing? And you were saying, ultimately, the market would have stopped that. Ultimately, the American people would have stopped that because they would have realized we'll get no one. Same thing, the same path we were on on gay marriage before the Supreme Court stepped in, right? The same path I think we were on on abortion in some ways until Roe versus Wade stepped in. Like the American people figure it out eventually, maybe not on the right timeline, but eventually. Anyway, I, you gave me a lot of food for thought. I've been thinking about it ever since. Well, I'm delighted because even libertarians, most of them today, are afraid to bring up that argument about the Civil Rights Act, which was that, yeah, government discrimination was evil and the Civil Rights Act was right to stop it, but private discrimination ought to be something that free people are allowed to do. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of a story that uh, I heard about one school where the valedictorian was going to issue his remarks. And the school made him show the remarks to the principal. This is the valedictorian. Like, what are the odds this is just some loser who's going to get up there and say outrageous stuff? And he circled a bunch of stuff that the kid had to take out that was not controversial and, you know, reduced it to just this anodyne nothingness. And I thought, you know, back in my day, if you got up and gave a speech in front of your school that was racist or sexist or stupid or beyond the line of where we were, the public square would shout you down. Your peers would let you know, not cool. You sound like a douchebag. Like, don't do that. Boo. And you learned the hard way where the lines were. I don't think you learn when the principal just takes it out in the red circle. So that's, that's libertarian. That is. So we'll keep broadcasting and let the public shout us down if we're wrong. That's right. You're a delight to talk to. I can't believe how you remember these details. I never could, but that's what makes you a good anchor. Thank you, Megan Kelly. The pleasure's all mine. Thanks for listening. New episodes drop the first and third Mondays of every month. You can subscribe everywhere you get podcasts.